real, real conversation, conversation and some hard truths. Hard truth. Gangs, drugs, and guns, giving a voice to those willing to sacrifice. We have stories that need to be told. We have lessons that need to be taught. Protect and serve. Welcome to The Quiet Professional. So, Hi, everybody, and welcome back. Nathan Rome is with you. And as well as, for the first time, our co-host for this series, Calvin Krusty, senior partner and consultant with the Critical Risk team, who was a previous guest on the podcast in season one, episode 17. Calvin will be joining in on most, if not all of the episodes for this series. So welcome, Calvin. Thank you very much. Uh, Looking forward to it. And so for those who have been watching the news, uh, maybe you're flipping through social media or have listened to anything our politicians have been talking about lately, uh, you have probably heard the topics of China, foreign influence, espionage, and geopolitics mentioned a time or two. Because of the growing influence on our nation, both from outside actors and within, in this ever-expanding arena of geopolitics, Calvin and I have put together this series of podcasts on these issues and more. And just before introducing our first guest, I just want to clarify that when talking about China, we are talking about the Chinese Communist Party, or CCP, and their various arms of influence and coercion. This is distinct from the good people of China, that the majority of whom are good global citizens and have contributed to the advancement and prosperity of Canada. So with that, today our guest is Charles Burton. Charles is a senior fellow at the Macdonald Laurier Institute's Centre for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad and a non-resident senior fellow for the European Value Centre for Security Policy. Charles has published on China's domestic affairs and international relations. He is a frequent commentator on Chinese affairs in newspapers, radio, and TV. Charles has worked for the Department of Political Science at Brock University, specializing in comparative politics, government and politics of China, Canada-China relations, and human rights. And he's also worked for the Communication Security Establishment of the Canadian Department of National Defense. So welcome, Charles. It's great to be with you. Thank you for having me on your podcast. So um, maybe we'll start off with an easy topic and talk about you. Uh, Can you tell us kind of where you come from and uh, maybe a bit about growing up and then how you got into this world? Well, I, uh, you know, I come from a family that uh, was among the early settlers of Ottawa. And so we've been We've been in this area since the 1820s, um, but both of my parents are, in fact, um, immigrants. My my mother is from Barbados. My father is from England, but it was my mother's family that uh, that had a branch that came out here to Canada and uh, developed Ottawa before the Rideau Canal was put in and before it was designated as the capital of Canada. Um, I, you know, I, I attended Lisgar Collegiate Institute uh, a high school in downtown Ottawa. And um, on the way back from the high school, walking home, I'd walk down Rideau Street. And in the late 60s, when I was probably about uh, grade 11, I never did grade 10, um, uh, a new bookstore opened up called Progressive Books. And I went in that bookstore um, out of curiosity and found that all the books 
in the bookstore were books from China in different languages, English, French, Esperanto, Chinese, Japanese. Everything was a Chinese publication in progressive books. And the price on the books was extremely reasonable. So with my uh, modest income from delivering the Globe and Mail in the morning before I went to school, I was able to purchase you know, quite a lot of these things. So I started to read you know, the Peking Review and uh, China Reconstructs and China Pictorial and Chinese Literature and various uh, you know, speeches of the Chinese leadership. And this was the Cultural Revolution period. So this was when Chairman Mao was at the peak of his prestige. I remember reading an article in the Peking Review where they said, Chairman Mao has penetrating insight into everything. Mm-hmm. So I was quite impressed by, by this idea. And I'd read about, um, you know, the campaign to criticize Lin Biao and Confucius. Lin Biao was Chairman Mao's designated successor in the Chinese uh, party constitution, who subsequently was accused of a plot to assassinate the chairman. Confucius was the great sage of Chinese civilization. Or about Deng Xiaoping as the unrepentant uh, capitalist rotor who seeks to reverse correct verdicts. Or about uh, the Soviet revisionists. You know, I I got fairly strongly imbued in the Chinese Communist Party's worldview um, in that period in the in the sixties. And eventually, having got to know the guys who worked in the bookstore, they explained to me that they were members of the Canadian Communist Party, Marxist-Leninist, the one oriented towards China and Albania, not the one oriented towards the Soviet revisionists. And they thought that uh, perhaps it would be a good idea if I organized a communist cell in Lister Collegiate Institute among the other great eleveners to overthrow the, um, you know, the capitalist roadster government of Pierre Elliott Trudeau, who, you know, was the running dog of the American imperialists. And uh, I, uh, I had to turn them down. I was busy with the Latin club in my univer- in my school. Um, I was still a soprano in the church choir. You know, I had a lot of other things going, so I, I regrettably was unable to foment the communist revolution to overthrow the Canadian capitalist system and establish a China-friendly communist regime in Canada, as they'd hoped. And a couple of years later, the bookstore went bust. But I continued my interest in um, Chinese affairs and um, you know, studied that at university. I, I was at University of Toronto. And then I went out to uh, Cambridge University, where I studied in what they call the Faculty of Oriental Studies. So I, I was doing a full-time program on China-related studies, ancient and modern. And then I decided, you know, why am I doing this in England? And was able to get a place on the Canada-China Scholars Exchange Program. Mm-hmm. And this was uh, an exchange program set up by our foreign minister, Mitchell Sharp, and the Chinese premier of the state council at the time, Zhou Enlai, when we established diplomatic relations with China in 1970. So we have this program to exchange 10 students either way. And I was one of the 10 in my year and um, went down to Fudan University in Shanghai. You know, I already had Chinese from my studies in Cambridge. So I, I, entered the philosophy program 
at um, Fudan University and studied the history of ancient Chinese thought uh, program. So I, I studied essentially ancient books, but there was also an awful lot of politics in how you interpret China's history, you know, re reinterpreting it in terms of Marxist understanding of the 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 past to try and justify the current uh, regime and the revolution under Chairman Mao and later under Chairman Hua. Now, when I got to the university, um, they had picture of Chairman Mao on the blackboard, uh, just above the blackboard, uh, which was the same size and same position as the portrait of Her Majesty the Queen in my elementary school, Creighton Street Public School. So it was sort of interesting that, you know, this portrait of the head of state was in, in both of them. Mm. And uh, after I uh, after I left uh, China, after four years of study, um, I was able to get a job in the Communication Security Establishment of Canada. Um, but I, you know, was required to learn Russian at that time. And, and so I left the China area because we weren't doing... Um, work on China out of the CIC in those years, we were focused on, you know, the North um, alert or listening base and alert. And, uh, and so I did Russian and then I decided, uh, that, you know, I'd prefer to, to go back into, uh, China studies and, uh, went and did a uh, doctorate at, at the U of T and, you know, sort of took it from there. Uh, eventually I got a job at Brock university and, Two years into my job there, just after I got tenure and promotion, I was invited by the um, Canadian Department of External Affairs that was at that time to uh, come and uh, serve in the Canadian Embassy in Beijing. So I I went there and uh, worked as uh, advisor to the ambassador and the section heads on matters relating to China and, and headed up the cultural section. Then I returned to Brock and a few years later, I was asked to go back to work in the Canadian Embassy again, this time doing entirely uh, political political work. So I had two uh, periods of being a diplomat in China. And then after that, I started to do a lot of um, uh, consulting work for the Canadian government while trying to maintain a, a teaching uh, position at Brock. And eventually, a few years ago, I, I uh, took a buyout package from Brock University, and I'm now doing full-time security consulting on Chinese affairs, uh, both with um, government agencies here in Canada and um, um, NGOs in the United States and and particularly in Europe. So that's why I have this affiliation with the European Value Center for Security Policy, because a lot of the focus of my current work is um, in Europe. I think that, you know, the European government's particularly those that are um, have had the experience of being satellites of the Soviet Union um, mm-hmm. in Eastern Europe, have a lot of expertise in Russian matters, but they find that it's not uh, translating adequately into meeting the, the China threat. So people like me are, are in demand to, to sort of fill the gap before they're able to develop that linguistic and and political expertise to mm-hmm. to fully understand what's going on with China and Europe. So that's really where I am today. I, I work full time in in consulting and find that you know I can't meet the demand for for contracts from agencies around the world. Uh, it's it's pretty challenging and demoralizing work 
but uh you know, I'm too old to retrain, so I think I'm pretty much uh, stuck with this China thing for the time being. So that's essentially the the short, the short and long of my life up to now. Well, it's the uh, beginning of your bio that I'm sure you'll put in a book one day. Now, those years in China were pretty interesting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, maybe going back a bit to when you're talking about being that bookstore way back when, um, and you're looking at all these books from China, or at least that are talking about it. Uh, were Canadians relatively aware of China at that time? So this is the 70s. This is before internet. Like, how were people getting their information on China? How aware would you say is the average Canadian at that time? Yeah, I'd say awareness was low. I mean, China was an impoverished um, nation. But, you know, among, um, I think, people of leftist inclination, there was a lot of favor over the Chinese revolution. You know, um, when um, the premier of the state council, Zhao Ziyang, came to uh, be the first communist leader to address a joint session of the Canadian parliament, you know, Prime Minister Pierre Elliott Trudeau spoke uh, about his, um, you know, fond memories of talking about politics with Premier Zhou Enlai until late in the night when he um, visited uh, China in 1973. And so I think that there were a lot of Canadians that that were taken up with the idea of the Chinese Cultural Revolution and were, you know, of course, deceived by the mm-hmm. propaganda. Um, you know, they, 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 uh, they believed that China had discovered a, a way for third world development that wasn't beholden to... Uh, the United States or to Russia, and that and that somehow it was a more human uh, system. I mean, this was utter nonsense. The Cultural Revolution was, you know, a disaster. Uh, you know, and I, which I learned more about when I when I got to China and started to meet people who had been subject to torture and imprisonment and forced labor, and you know, university professors who were sent out to farm in remote areas um, over that over that period and were uh, some you know some driven to suicide by by persecution so um, but you know a lot of people believed in it i I was never um, uh, taken with the cultural revolution, but when I did go to China with uh, the other Canadians of that year, um, initially I was the the leader of the Canadian group because I had the best knowledge of Chinese. So mm-hmm. when we got there and they said, you know, breakfast at eight and then we'll go to the post office, I'd be able to transmit that information in English and French to my fellow Canadians. But they decided, the Canadians, some of the Canadians decided that I wasn't sufficiently supportive of China's revolution. And so they decided to struggle me by locking me in a room and challenging my, you know, remnant capitalist ideology. Um, and I was demoted I, I was no longer going to be the head of the the group after that. I became the interpreter to the new head of the Canadian group who was a, a, stu- a man who had come in to study Chinese acupuncture. So, you know, there were a lot of, of Westerners who believed in the revolution. And then some of them, when they got to China, you know, initially were expecting to find paradise on earth. And mm. when they saw the reality of what was really going on, this was quite uh, disillusioning for them particularly some of the French and Italians who were 
you know, hardcore extreme Marxists. And there was one girl who tried to throw herself out of a window, um, an Italian girl, one of my roommates managed to pull her back. But, um, you know, the Chinese were sort of staggered by these Canadians that were so imbued with faith in the ideology. And they said, you know, uh, we're trying to fly out of this birdcage and these Europeans are flying in. We don't understand it. Mm-hmm. And so I, I was fortunate then in that I seem to have a fairly, um, um, you know, values-based approach throughout the time and didn't, didn't suffer the disappointment of seeing the dream shattered. But I certainly learned a lot over that time about, you know, Chinese ideology and the nature of that Chinese communist regime, which, you know, still endures to this day. The fundamentals of the Stalinist uh, roots of, of Chinese communism have not gone because they've, they've uh, abandoned communization of the countryside or, or no longer um, have uh, utter state uh, control of the economy. It, it's still the nature of the regime remains, remains the same. Um, if I, I would say, you know, what's the basis for this regime? How did it arise? You know, how, how was it that in 1921, a Chinese Communist Party came into China? Mm-hmm. And I, I don't think it really was about the Marxist ideology. I think the Marxist ideology was largely a, a tool to a larger purpose, which was to um, establish China as a strong and powerful nation that after the humiliation of the Treaty of Versailles uh, in 1919, you know, this was, China had uh, participated in World War I. They fought on our side. Um, well, mostly they, there were Chinese laundrymen and cooks that were sent to Europe. And they had expected that after the First World War that the German colonies would be returned to Chinese sovereignty. The German colonies along the eastern coast of China and Shandong would naturally be returned to Chinese sovereignty, but under the Treaty of Versailles, the, uh, the victors of World War One transferred those colonies to the Japanese, and this then led to a crisis in China and the first series of demonstrations in Tiananmen Square on May Fourth, nineteen nineteen, and then led to the Chinese Communist Party coming forward as a means for China's self-strengthening. So. The the key is that when Chairman Mao declared the regime after the communists had survived, you know, the the Japanese invasion and had defeated the uh, American-backed nationalists in the civil war between 1945 and 49, the Chairman Mao in the rostrum of Tiananmen Square declared that the Chinese people have stood up. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, the anticipation of Chairman Mao was that China would become the the leader of of Marxist revolution and replace the the Soviets under Stalin as being the true um, center of the world, and that the the Marxist revolution would would naturally take place everywhere, and China would be the dominant power on the planet. And so you're seeing the same process, you know, today, just without the Marx. The idea of China's establishment of being the dominant power in the world is something which has existed throughout that that regime's existence and arguably could have been the reason why it arose in the first place. So, and throughout time, they've always considered themselves as a dominant force or at least, you know, not really submissive to anybody, 
even in their region, but worldwide. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, the traditional Chinese cosmology, um, you know, of ancient times is that the emperor of China is the son of heaven and is the sole legitimate political authority. Only the emperor of China has a connection with the forces of, you know, the forces of nature. Mm. Um, You know, you can tell, uh, according to traditional Chinese cosmology, you can tell when an imperial dynasty is about to be replaced and lose the mandate of heaven because things start to go wrong in the in the natural world birds start to fly backwards women start to give birth to cows mm. um, you know pestilence runs through the land there like there are plagues of locusts the the there's there's drought you know there's failure of crops and then the people become desperate and and a new you know, vigorous peasant leader overthrows the previous dynasty and a new one comes to the fore. Well, I mean, this is obviously, uh, you know, I don't think we uh, actually credit the birds flying backwards and women giving birth to cows thing, but the idea that, you know, the dynasty becomes corrupt and then um, they sell off the grain reserves and then when natural disaster occurs, the people are desperate is certainly historically accurate. But it's only the son of heaven who is who is the legitimate political authority. And all other nations, uh, the further they are from the Chinese capital in sort of concentric circles of civilization, are less and less civilized. Hmm. And so the emperor sends out officials to those regions where the people can be ruled. And those regions farther away are simply allowed to be controlled by their tribal chiefs because they're considered, you know, uncivilized, illiterate people who, who don't deserve the direct rule from the imperial source. But they have to acknowledge that China is the sole, you know, legitimate power and should bring tribute to the emperor to, to, to acknowledge his position and not make it necessary for the Chinese regime to invade them and subjugate them. And you see this, I mean, you know, if you look at the readings, if you look at, like, they knew, they knew about people from Holland. These are red-headed, hairy people. And they, they have a disgusting habit of, of taking, squeezing the milk out of cows and then leaving it until it gets covered with bacteria and hard. And then eating that awful cheese substance, which, you know, really verifies how barbaric we are if we would be consuming something so smelly and disgusting as cheese. So, you know, it's an indication of civilization and technology only exists in Beijing and everywhere else should be, you know, um, subject to Beijing's authority. And I think under Xi Jinping, we're seeing a restoration of this idea that China has a a, a, a tradition and a legitimacy in establishing itself as the dominant civilizational force on the planet, and that you, you know the United States is in decline, and um, uh, our norms are inferior, and that liberal democratic institutions are inferior, and that we, what we need is is to become um, uh, subject to. The rule of the Chinese Communist Party uh, through regimes which are, 
you know, tributary regimes to the main regime out of China. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's what we're, that, that's his, that's Xi's ambition today. Of course, I, I don't think it will be able to be fulfilled, but it, this kind of ideological thinking, you know, similar to the ideological thinking of Vladimir Putin dominates their, their political planning. In other words, they spend an awful lot of time reading history books and interpretations of history rather than looking at, you know, how to make a modern and just and good society. So, and kind of on that point, you're talking a lot about the religion aspect. So is that, a, is that the driving force for a lot of their political moves? Um, like as a Western society, it seems like religion is very separate from politics. Maybe somewhere behind the scenes, it's part of it. But uh, it seems like everything I've been reading lately on China, that religion plays a massive part in why they do things and why they think a certain way. So is that kind of a, a hard thing for Westerners to kind of grasp when they're dealing with China or the CCP? Yeah, I think it's hard for us to appreciate how very differently the Chinese regime sees the world. And, you know, this is what Xi Jinping refers to as the Chinese dream of national rejuvenation. And the other the other language they use is the community of the common destiny of mankind. And so essentially what he's calling for is a, a you know a restoration of China's greatness and um, you know retaliation for Western imperialism in the 19th century, like the opium wars and other mm-hmm. demands that the West should have the ability to settle in China and engage in trade in China and so on, which previously uh, the Chinese had resisted. Um, and so he wants to make this community of the common destiny of mankind replace the existing uh, global institutions like the UN and the WTO. And so that that is it there. But they, the Chinese strategy is to try and... Um, you know, say different things internally in China to what they say externally, which is why it's so important for us to be looking at Chinese language um, speeches directed towards the Chinese Communist Party and the people, as opposed to the kinds of statements that Xi Jinping might make at the UN or at Davos, which, you know, suggests that China plans to be a responsible stakeholder in global affairs and supports the principles of the WTO and the UN when their actual military and diplomatic behavior suggests that they are opposed to the international rules-based order based on liberal values and and seek to to defeat it. So, you know, there's a there's a tension there between the way that they're trying to depict China to us mm-hmm. and the promise that they're giving to the Chinese people of the overall large agenda of the Chinese Communist Party, which is this nationalistic, you know, sort of fascistic rise to power, which they hope to achieve by 2050, the 100th anniversary of the establishment of the regime. Okay. Well, and so one of the things I've never found clear about the whole picture with the CCP and what they're kind of driving toward is if you look at things like World War II, if we talk about Germany, like they had a very clear, hey, we're exterminating these groups of people. We think we're the superior race or ethnicity. But you don't hear that with China so much. So is China, um, are they trying to, are are they just, they just want to be in political power 
and then are saying, hey, we're fine with everybody else as long as you just kind of follow our rules? Or do they have, are they looking at it through ethnicity? Um, is it idea, ideological? Uh, is it a combination of it all? Or is there one particular driving force? Well, I think that there is an ethnic element here. I mean, you know, we know about what China is trying to do to the Uyghur Muslim minority in terms of um, the, you know, the Canadian House of Commons unanimously determined that it's genocide under the, mm-hmm. the Convention Against Genocide definition of the United Nations, which was the first UN uh, covenant when the UN was formed after World War II. And so I, I, previously China had seen itself as a multicultural nation. Now they referred to the Chinese nation, really meaning the Han ethnicity. And so you're, you're seeing the suppression of the history, language, and culture of these other um, groups who uh, are within the territory of the People's Republic of China, um, amounting to about maybe 9 or 10% of the population, uh, who believe that you know, their traditional lands should be independent states. So you know, Tibetans typically believe that Tibet should not be ruled from Beijing, but should be an independent nation with its own flag on the UN and own defined territory quite a bit bigger than the Chinese Tibet autonomous region borders, ruled by the His Holiness, the Dalai Lama. Mm-hmm. And the Uyghurs typically feel that that the traditional Uyghur lands, uh, which are also much bigger than the Xinjiang Uyghur autonomous region, and in fact include some of the lands that are claimed by the Tibetans, uh, should become an independent state called East Turkestan, and similarly have, you know, their own language, their own culture, and it's like met Shenu, you know, masters in their, in their own house. China uh, has an interpretation of history that those territories have always been part of the Han-dominated um, regions. But I think what's concerning in terms of this ethnic activity is the. Um, the desire of the Chinese regime to mobilize people of Chinese ancestry in Canada to support the purposes of the of the regime. Mm-hmm. And they do this through an agency of the Chinese Communist Party called the United Front Work Department that Xi Jinping has defined as one of the three treasures of the Dharma uh, or magic weapons of the Chinese Communist Party, along with armed struggle and party building. And the idea of this is to get people who are not necessarily um, uh, supportive of the Chinese Communist Party directly to support the purposes of the regime. And so they've been putting out a lot of false information about um, Canada within Chinese language media in Canada, like WeChat or Chinese websites. Mm -hmm. And they're suggesting that Canada is a white supremacist racist society and that persons of Chinese origin should seek their refuge and support for the motherland, in other words, um, China. Well, this is very disturbing to us for people of, you know, our Chinese Canadians who should, as Canadian citizens, should naturally be loyal to one country and one country alone, which is ours. Mm -hmm. And of course, the vast, vast majority of persons of Chinese origin in Canada don't want to have any association with the Chinese communist regime and are loyal to to Canada. But we've seen uh, 
you know, activities in electoral interference where you know, political candidates of ethnic origin have been subject to horrendous disinformation campaigns. And I think the estimate of the last election by the Conservatives was that nine candidates were affected by, um, you know, this Chinese massive campaign. And and as you probably have heard, uh, um, there have been revelations about a CSIS report, um, CSIS memo that was directed to the Prime Minister about the 2019 election, mm -hmm. in which they say that there were 11 candidates that were supported illegally by um, a CCP sources and that the Chinese regime had placed 13 staffers in the offices of uh, Canadian members of parliament. That, that, pro, that allegation is currently under investigation by the um, House of Commons Procedures and House Affairs Committee, so, which I've been asked to give some evidence. Um, and I, you know, we'll see uh, what comes out of that. But obviously that's outrageous if China's attempting to interfere in our, in our democratic process uh, by um, mobilizing people to, you know, uh, um, smear loyal Chinese Canadians and prevent them from achieving their rightful position as members of our democratic legislature. I mean, obviously we want to have all the ethnicities of Canada fairly represented in our democratic process, including persons of Chinese origin. But um, some of these MPs, um, uh, you know, may have connections with China that they're not being forthcoming about. Mm -hmm. And China may be taking action which would be illegal to to try and prevent persons of Chinese ethnicity who are loyal to Canada from from serving in in the Canadian government. So, you know, there is an ethnic element and the Chinese propaganda even extends to those um, uh, nearly all um, Chinese girls who were adopted by Canadian families. You know, you you there are many Canadian families who are unable to have children themselves or for whatever reason are adopting uh, children who have been abandoned in China and uh, sees those children because of their ethnicity as being um, uh, targets for um, subversion to make them loyal to China and not to, you know, the only country they've known, which is Canada. So their ethnic aspect is very concerning. And, you know, it's certainly something that, uh, that we should not be uh, allowing to go unchallenged. So when they're trying to have this influence on people who are in Canada now, uh, what's their ultimate goal? Are they trying to get these people to move back there and then you know bring their, whether it's their skills, their knowledge, maybe they're done university, they're in a very specialized field. Uh, you know, What's the ultimate goal of trying to influence them? Or do they want them to stay here, just be sympathetic to the cause, and then they're either providing intellectual property or some other means of support from within Canada? Well, if they're supposed to be loyal to the motherland, then they would be taking direction from the um, uh, United Front Work Department. And there are a number of uh, uh, Chinese-Canadian associations that we believe are essentially, you know, tools of the Chinese government. And they engage in political lobbying. They might give governments the false impression that most uh, Canadians of Chinese origin support the purposes of the Chinese regime. And therefore, if the Canadian government engages in policy measures that the Chinese government would not like, 
that they will lose political support in in uh, constituencies where there is a high presence of ethnic Chinese, such as in, you know, say Richmond, BC, or Markham, Ontario, where that where the Chinese community is is uh, fairly concentrated and and does have a significant influence over uh, voting results. And then if you are you know convinced that your loyalty is to China, not to Canada, then you may be open to approaches to engage in supporting um, espionage. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you know if you're in a high tech position or working in a university, uh, you could you could become an agent of the Chinese regime in transferring dual use military technologies from Canada to agents of the Chinese state. And this is an area that we have a great deal of concern about. Because uh, you know a lot of this activity is going on, um, uh, I think, without the full awareness of the Canadian collaborators in this sort of stuff, or um, you know, or they can become uh, um, agents for assisting um, Canadian politicians to raise money and and providing them with benefits, even post post uh, political career benefits. Uh, that, uh, you know, it's really about money, but it's also about maybe manipulation of the naivety of us or our greed Mm -hmm. in terms of if you, uh, you know, if you uh, don't support policies hostile to the interests of the Chinese regime in Canada while you're in a position of public trust, after you leave office, you know, you will receive benefits of what my friend at the Royal United Services Institute in Britain, Charlie Parton, refers to as life-transforming amounts of money. So, you know, they getting people to to be amenable to approaches from a foreign regime is, uh, you know, troubling, particularly if those people are in fact citizens of Canada. And uh, you know, we need more legislation to ensure transparency in that. Canadians who receive benefits from a foreign state um, are uh, required to make this transparent so that any conflict of interest could be readily perceived. I mean, we did have the the example, for example, of Jean Charest, who, um, you know, had been making some statements supportive of uh, Huawei's um, agenda in Canada. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, fair enough. I mean, people have different uh, political perspectives or understanding of the threat of of Huawei um, to uh, Canadian telecommunications, but then subsequently, it was reports came out that Mr. Charest had been the recipient of a retainer from Huawei in the amount of seventy thousand Canadian dollars a month over a three-year period. Wow, nothing illegal here, um, but you know, I I would have liked to have known that earlier on. Mm-hmm. At least the, the reports say it's seventy thousand. I don't know if Mr. Charest has acknowledged the amount, but we do know that he was recipient of benefits from Huawei and other Chinese state firms. But in terms of your earlier question, do Canadians have awareness of this? I, not as much as I would like, mm-hmm. because when Pierre Polyev brought up Mr. Huawei's uh, um, benefits being received from the Huawei company in the course of the conservative leadership debate, it was only one issue. Many it wasn't considered a definitive issue. It didn't seem to be something that people were saying, well, this could disqualify him from being prime minister, or perhaps if he has received $2 million from the Huawei company, that he should return that money before he becomes prime minister. That certainly wasn't there. there you know, The concern over Mr. Charest was on 
um, his governance of the province of Quebec and other political history or whether he suited the current um, mood of the Conservative Party, but not about potential conflict of interest because he'd been working for a, comp- for a law firm that receives a lot of benefits from, from China. So, you know, as I say, there's no legislation against this. There's no suggestion that anything illegal here, but I would just prefer more transparency among people in key positions as to whether they're receiving benefits from a foreign country. And so far, our government has been uh, resistant to the idea of enacting legislation comparable to that of other nations to to ensure that we just have more information about, you know, potential conflicts of interest. Go ahead there. Calvin, did you have? Well, for, first of all, uh, Charles, thanks for the uh, historical and strategic uh, overview. And I'm really interested in uh, this portion um, of it. And, and I, I guess I'd just ask you just in terms of your perspective uh, on the analysis as to why <clears throat> these issues haven't uh, gained as, as much attention or concern uh, and perhaps so late in the game. That, that would probably be one of my first questions is in terms of uh, y- your assessment as to why did it take so long to get to the point where we're actually having these public conversations about it. Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. Uh, you know, I uh, since um, 2005, I've published about 150 op-ed pieces in the Globe and Mail and other papers. There's, you'll see one from me, I think, coming out tomorrow in the Globe. And so, you know, in the initial period, I think people regarded me as a sort of, you know, extreme conspiracy theorist kind of person. But over that period, you know, particularly in recent years, you're seeing people who are articulating positions similar to those that I, I've been warning about all those years before and doing it much better than I have, you know, much better language. And just, you know, it's good to see good journalists who, who can write in a much more convincing way than, than my uh, nerdy academic self. But, uh, you know, I think that there's, there are a couple of issues here. One is, um, this notion that it doesn't matter very much, or maybe that, you know, some like sort of racist idea that if Canadians of Chinese origin are being subject to harassment and menacement by agents of the Chinese regime, that, you know, that this really doesn't have much to do with us and we should just let it go. I mean, they, there are significantly more um, Chinese diplomats, in other words, people with. Um, uh, diplomatic passports accredited to Canada from the People's Republic of China than from any other nation, including the United States, you know, about, I think, seven times the comparable figure for the UK and more than the US. So you're wondering what all those Chinese diplomats are doing um, and why we, you know, why we allow that activity to go on. And so I, uh, the Chinese counter that anything we do about um, Chinese espionage or cracking down on Chinese influence activities is racist. And Canadians, of course, are very sensitive to, to accusations of racism um, because, you know, we have a, a bad history of, of racism. You know, we had the, the, we banned all Chinese migration into Canada between 1925 and 1947. And prior to that, we imposed a head tax on Chinese and Chinese alone. So there is in fact a, a tradition, you know, a history of racism that we, that we uh, regret. 
But I think the other aspect is that, you know, there are Canadian companies, uh, significant Canadian companies who have uh, very lucrative relationships with uh, Chinese state concerns. And those Chinese state concerns through the embassy and other means make it clear to those companies that if Canada engages in programming which challenges China's non-economic agenda, you know, the political agenda, the the United Front Work Department work, the espionage, the Chinese uh, territorial expansion in the South China Sea, China's harassing of Tibet, China's domestic human rights abuses, including the Uyghur genocide and and um, other, you know, suppression of of people's freedom to speak their minds out and oppose uh, the extremes of the regime. That that we will lose uh, business, mm-hmm. and naturally, those companies have a lot of influence in the centers of power in Ottawa and the Prime Minister's office because you know they create prosperity and jobs and they donate to 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 political campaigns and political parties so i think that that uh you know it's really because we bought into this idea from china that if we don't um you know ease down on on uh, non-trade matters that that we will lose um, uh, access to the chinese market and there's always a promise that you know, we'll be expanding our access in the Chinese market. I can, looking at the history of Canada-China relations, there have been two times when the Chinese regime has promised tripling our trade, and it's never actually happened. And But, you know, I think that we've been intimidated by the Chinese very sophisticated um, engagement to feel that there could be serious costs for significant sectors of our economy if, um, you know, we don't toe the line on on uh, appeasement of the Chinese regime. But if you look at the actual numbers, our total external commodities trade to China only amounts to about 4% of what we sell abroad. Most of it is um, minerals um, and agricultural commodities, you know, including wood. So that sort of product has a world market. So if China engages in... Um, say, um, retaliation, similar to what they did at the time of, the, of our uh, detaining of Meng Wanzhou while we investigated a U.S. extradition request for the CFO of Huawei. And they, um, they uh, on spurious grounds, imposed non-tariff barriers on Canadian exports of canola seeds, $30 million a year export, claiming that our canola seeds were full of contaminants which they aren't. None of our other customers had that. And also for a period restricted some meats out of Quebec, that if they, you know, if they impose those restrictions, that, you know, it would, we could seek markets elsewhere. In other words, if they buy fewer soybeans from Ontario, um, it means they're buying more from Brazil, which means that, that, you know, there's a, a market somewhere else for those former Br- Brazilian soybeans. So, mm-hmm. you know, the, the Chinese threats are not able to be fully carried out. And when Australia decided to stand up to China a few years ago with various measures, like the Foreign Influence Transparency Scheme Act to demand um, um, accountability for Australian politicians who were receiving benefits from the Chinese regime, including the former Minister of International Trade that uh, was alleged to be receiving an eight hundred and eighty thousand dollar a year private consultancy from a Chinese uh, billionaire, um, you know. And when they insisted that China agree to an international investigation of the sources of COVID nineteen, and uh, 
and other you know measures to challenge China's espionage activities in Australia. Uh, China retaliated through imposing uh, restrictions on Australian um, commodities exports into China, particularly coal, iron ore, and uh, uh, Australia was quite nimble in uh, in deflecting the Chinese activity by uh, by uh, moving into other market areas um, and didn't suffer the sort of consequences that I think China had hoped to impose. So, you know, the, uh, the, the, the short summary of this long and wandering answer to your question, Calvin, is uh, it seems like we're intimidated by the Chinese regime through accusations of racism and threat of economic coercion to allow China to engage in more and more malign activities in our country. Um, but we don't have to, you know, that, mm-hmm. that we could be taking a principled stance upholding our Canadian values. And I would argue not suffering um, enormous economic consequences. Thanks for that, Charles. On that same note, when we look at the history, you know, over the last, and I, I, I don't want to uh, date myself uh, on the uh, audio podcast, um, <laughs> but when we look at, say, the last 20 or 30 years, um, there hasn't been a lot of public dialogue about it. There hasn't been a lot of uh, outcry about it. There's been historic reports from the security and intelligence entities, you know, you know commencing probably the most acute one being Project Sidewinder from the RCMP and CSIS, mm-hmm. identifying that there's these uh, security and intelligence threats taking place in Canada uh, in the late uh, 90s and early 2000s. Um, <clears throat> but in the last year or two, there's been, um, I think, a major shift taking place. And I'm curious on your perspective, because you did talk uh, earlier about your... Uh, uh, um, interconnectivity to Europe uh, and the U.S. And I just wondered what your perspective is um, looking at this over the last several decades. This recent shift where we're actually having these conversations when it's actually being discussed more frequently in the House of Commons when we're talking about having uh, Chinese military operatives working in sensitive labs uh, where we're talking about the concerns with fentanyl um, and what the uh, possible role of the triads in the states may or may not be in those. Um, what do you think the real shift was caused from? Internal? And how important was the external influence in terms of our international partners, do you think, on us kind of having an aha moment and shifting our policies and perspectives on it. Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, as you say, there was a sidewinder. And I think that the word is has been out among senior people in CSIS, RCMP, and CSE, people who hope to move into the EX class of, um, of the civil service, that if you, you know, deliver reports that urge the government to take action uh, against China's malign activities, that this is damaging to your career, you know, and those reports tend to be shelved. I mean, Sidewinders just disappeared into a drawer somewhere. There are a couple of versions of it that I've seen. Um, And I know that a lot of people at the ground in uh, operations, RCMP operations and so on, are 
concerned about their lack of resources and the um, you know the or the way that that the RCMP is structured to uh, meet these challenges, which is not working well against a highly integrated, um, comprehensive approach by our Chinese uh, adversaries. So, you know, I think that that there is a lot of suppression of the truth, and that people at the lower levels are unable to uh, to get uh, this, the higher levels to provide them with satisfaction. And then there's some fairly objective issues, like I, I've been involved uh, working um, under contract for the RCMP in uh, a couple of times in preparation of potential cases against persons who are alleged to have transferred Chinese, uh, Canadian um, uh, secrets to agents of the Chinese regime. And when the cases have been prepared, they're referred to the Department of Justice who um, compare them against the existing body of legislation and have decided not to proceed because they are not confident they can achieve a conviction. So it's, you know, our legislation um, to address these kinds of activities is not as strong as the more modern beefed up legislation of, of uh, comparable Anglophile, Anglophone uh, countries like uh, the United States, Britain, and Australia. And there seems to be no political will to look into that and to make the legislative changes that would allow our police services to more successfully gain convictions. Uh, you know, I'd really like to see some of these uh, people who are operating so freely, as you say, out of universities or, or other means, uh, who are taking uh, Canadian secrets uh, quite critical to our five eyes um, and uh, transferring them to agents in China. You know, we've only, we've only, uh, it's only been when there's been a U.S. extradition request, like the case of Su Bin back in 2017, who was a Chinese military agent who was um, stealing many hundreds of gigabytes of Boeing aerospace data. But the man was physically in Vancouver that, uh, you know, that we had this case that was transferred over um, and Mr. Su eventually freely rendered himself to the United States where he went state's evidence. But, you know, it wasn't us catching someone. It was the U.S. And then the more recent case um, uh, in Hydro-Quebec, this was really the Hydro-Quebec uh, own security people who were able to determine that there is someone who was working for Hydro-Quebec that is alleged to uh, have been engaged in transfer of, of uh, battery technology to the Chinese regime. It's not been proven yet. He's, I believe he's being detained, but it hasn't come to trial. So, you know, it may or may not be true. Um, but it wasn't our investigation. It was really the internal investigation of Hydro-Quebec, as far as I can make out, that resulted in this, um, in this arrest. Um, so, and, I'm, and I am wondering, I'm watching the case with some interest to see if, in fact, a conviction is possible. I, I'm looking at it. It looks to me like the case may be weak, but I'm not a legal expert. I'm just a, an observer. I think that in terms of external pressure, you know, I, I felt some regret over the years that I've been called upon to go to Washington to talk to people in uh, positions of authority in the U.S. regime about Canada's uh, China policy and our issues of influence. Um, and I've, you know, I, I really don't like to be saying negative things about our country to foreigners. <laughs> but on the other hand, I have tried to be honest. Um, um, we know that in October, the um, last October, the, 
the uh, U.S. Uh, Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, was in Ottawa. At that time, it was announced that Canada and the United States would be engaging in a strategic dialogue on Indo-Pacific policy, which suggests the United States felt that there was something they wanted to dialogue with us about. And Canada requested admission to the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework for Prosperity scheme that the United States headed up 14 countries that pointedly excluded Canada. In other words, you know, 14 countries in the IPF and Canada's not part of it. What's that saying? So I think that, you know, it's got to the point where I would suspect that the U.S. are seeing Canada as a weak link in the five eyes. You know, they established the Australia-UK-US alliance in Indo-Pacific. Last time I looked at the map, the UK is not an Indo-Pacific country, but Canada definitely is. So why weren't we there? Mm -hmm. And I think it's possible that Mr. Blinken has made a a clear signal to Canada that unless we start to to get more into compliance with our like-minded allies and put resources into... um, uh, you know, um, meeting the challenge of China, including in the Arctic, where I think the U.S. would like us to be taking the lead. You know, the U- the U.K. has offered to send some military support there. Why do we need to rely on the U.K. to defend our sovereign territory in the north? That if we didn't, you know, if we didn't change our policy, that that um, uh, there would be consequences in terms of weakening of the alliance, which would be disastrous for us because we're, of course, we're a net consumer of intelligence and. We have other issues, the north, the, the border, and so on, that we rely on the United States very much. So I think the U.S. got our number. But I think at the same time, Canada also appreciates that, you know, there's a shift. You have uh, Minister uh, Champagne talking about the need for decoupling. You have Minister Freeland talking about the need for friendshoring. You have uh, any number of senior Canadian officials talking about the need for us to secure critical supply chains, particularly in areas of critical minerals where China is seeking to gain a serious upper hand in in control of of those uh, things like lithium and cobalt and so on, which are so essential to our high-tech future. Uh, We're putting, you know, they, I, I gave evidence to a committee on this critical minerals thing and was surprised that for the first time I I think for the first time I've ever given evidence to a parliamentary committee, and I do it quite a lot, uh, the government came up with a response that I actually liked, which was that we're investing money into doing exploration for critical minerals here in Canada to try and, you know, create Canadian alternatives to the China-controlled spaces. And more recently, we banned two Chinese companies from lithium mining in in our country. So, you know, there is a change. Um, I think it's partially driven by the United States. I think it's partially driven by a recognition that our existing policies are not viable. We have issued an Indo-Pacific strategy, which it's not as specific as I would have liked. It's more aspirational. Mm -hmm. But I think even though there will be resistance from elements within our Canadian government and business community who don't want to rock the, you know, the, the, the China horse or something, uh, but I think it's inevitable that we will see that Indo-Pacific strategy fleshed out and that we will start to, uh, to start doing the right thing and, and changing our policy and finally having a reset on our approach to China that you know, we've been anticipating 
throughout pretty much throughout the Trudeau era since 2017. So I'm cautiously optimistic and cautiously optimistic is a new mode for me. In the past, I've been more despairing. So, you know, it's a positive thing. Yeah, I'm somewhere in between there, uh, Charles. And I and I just want to kind of reinforce, I mean, I've uh, my background 33 years uh, in the RCMP uh, before I went into the private uh, sector and now dealing with clients, dealing with these type of uh, issues. But I share your concern in terms of, uh, you know, the challenge, uh, knowing that some of uh, the listeners here are, are police of uh, perhaps I'm overly negative, but the impossibility almost of investigating and prosecuting something due to the current kind of framework legally uh, that is offered uh, to uh, police to be successful in terms of uh, mitigating this threat, I think is uh, something that I'm actually surprised that isn't, you know, one of the top topics since CSIS is saying, hey, top threat to Canada is China. One would think that the top concern of, say, uh, policing organizations, including the Canadian chiefs of police, possibly would be, how do we deal with this in terms of investigatively in the absence of legislative capabilities to support our people, whether they be front lines, investigative units, national security entities, uh, in terms of very uh, challenging, but uh, I think you kind of nailed it all, and I just wanted to kind of give my uh, perspective on it. Um, but you raised something really interesting, and um, knowing that the uh, podcast is uh, based in Alberta, you've talked about the uh, mining issues with lithium, and you know, in Manitoba, Saskatchewan, in particular, has <clears throat> got recent attention. Also. Um, there's been recent media uh, supports regarding foreign interference in terms of mines in Saskatchewan. Um, recently hit the uh, press in the last couple months. But as a group of Albertans, uh, your thoughts in terms of what's the uh, oil, gas, energy sector in Alberta and what would be the concerns, risk, and threats posed to that critical infrastructure for uh the uh, population and the people of Alberta, do you think, from a Chinese uh, government perspective? Well, you know, obviously it would be highly desirable for us to get our um, oil sands oil to to tidewater through a pipeline. Um, And I think that most um, of the Indigenous uh, peoples living on the route are supportive of it. You know, the, the opposition to it seems to be um, from a small group of extreme activists, and some of whom are supported by foreign foreign funding, uh, which is very concerning. Um, but you know, that being said, if you're going to develop a dependence on the Chinese market, you have to calculate that into the cost of doing business. In other words, the arbitrary nature of of dealing with China, their proclivity for um, intellectual property theft, and simple violation of established contracts means that it's a risky place to to do to do business you know and and uh, one has to be aware of that and so it's obviously it's highly desirable to diversify uh, one's markets so that um, Chinese economic coercion will not be um, uh, devastating to 
to operations. And I think that this is the ambition. You know, we have the Trans-Pacific Partnership uh, Agreement um, in the hope that we could be selling that oil not just to China One Market, but to diversified markets in the region and, for that matter, liquefied natural gas. But, um, you know, if I was looking, if, if you asked me who, who do you want to uh, have a contract with, the Chinese Communist regime or uh, a nation that, that respects the, the international norms of rule of law and international uh, standards of trade, I would definitely go with, you know, South Korea or, or another country uh, that, that uh, we have more confidence as, as a good place to do business. But, you know, that being said, Chinese market offers enormous appeal. It's a very large market. They need our, our energy inputs. They want to deal with Canada because, you know, we, we're a politically stable country. If you're getting oil out of the Middle East, uh, there's often the, the possibility of, of some internal um, uh, civil war or something that, that could disrupt uh, um, supply. But, um, uh, you know, I, I think our real hope is a change in regime in China with a new regime that respects international norms that we can deal with without having to make all sorts of conditions and provisions and calculations and and concerns about political implications of any involvement with that regime, particularly as it's increasingly hostile to our position as a middle power in the international rules-based order. Well, and kind of on that, um, would you say the C- is it fair to say the CCP is focused focused on the West and everybody else is kind of a um, a means to an end. So if we're talking like the Belt and Road, or um, you know they're doing some different things where they're kind of filling in where the West leaves in Africa or the Middle East, China's kind of stepping in. So is it is kind of their ambitions mainly to deal with the West, or they see us as the biggest issue, I guess you could say, and then everybody else is just a means to that end. Well, I think China is present. Everywhere, I mean, the Belt and Road Initiative is, you know, it, it's the economic part of the community of the common destiny of mankind, where all the belts and roads terminate in China. So it's a means to establish China as the center of global economic activity. And so I, I did do a report on uh, China's involvement uh, in West African countries. And you see uh, a lot of Chinese investment in those countries, which, um, you know, provides critical infrastructure and improves port facilities uh, in ways which the existing agencies like the World Bank or the Asian Development Bank or, you know, these other, uh, other a- development agencies are unable to do because a lot of these projects are uh, not economically viable or um, the... Uh, the Western-based institutions are reluctant to invest in countries where there's pervasive corruption so that the money that, that we put into development in those countries may end up in the dictator's Swiss bank account. China doesn't have these sorts of uh, concerns as much because a lot of their investment is to fulfill China's overall strategic mandate. And so I noticed in my study that you know, countries in West Africa that had port facilities that were very well placed um, for strategic reasons were receiving 
quite a lot more Chinese aid and a lot more loans were being forgiven and a lot more money was being tolerated, not being used for the development purpose um, and, and transferred to, to corruption. Because I think China anticipates that if they build a port and make a nation um, indebted to China in ways that they may not be able to repay, that they can then use this coercion to establish, say, a submarine base or other uh, People's Liberation Navy facilities in that country, and to get the country um, agreeing to Chinese purposes in other areas like voting in the UN. So you see a highly integrated uh, state Communist Party military business uh, complex in everything that China does. So, you know, it's similar to why is Huawei um, software and hardware 5G solutions marketed at prices considerably lower than, say, their competitors like Ericsson and Nokia? Well, I think it's because the Chinese state sees benefit to having those Huawei 5G installed because it provides critical um, coercion over potential infrastructure and access to uh, databases that could serve Chinese regime purposes. Mm -hmm. So you see China active everywhere. I mean, I did West Africa, but you know, there's no place in the world where you don't see a significant Chinese presence in terms of achieving Chinese influence through um, political and economic means. And in the meantime, you know, China remains an underdeveloped country. And as we can see from the current crisis over the massive spread of uh, COVID-19 and high rates of disease and death, China has not been investigating, uh, investing in domestic infrastructure. So, you know, they don't have enough hospitals and critical care facilities. And one could arguably see this because so much of Chinese national resources is going into third world um, projects to expand China's uh, global reach in Africa, South America, and, and, and also in uh, some countries in, in Europe, uh, Hungary and Greece, for example, who um, you know, are, are more open to the Chinese uh, approach than others. Well, and uh, maybe going back to a uh, point that you made a bit earlier and talking about the five eyes and where Canada is situated in that, uh, are we, and I'd appreciate the uh, being honest on this part because you're saying sometimes the honesty people see is pessimistic, but can't really solve anything if we're not being honest. Um, is Canada seen as a threat to the West itself? especially within that five eyes? Are we kind of the, uh, the hole that you know, everybody's getting through and um, you know, getting all the secrets and uh, just being a general liability, I guess? Well, I think that there uh, certainly some um, Australian specialists have indicated in their opinion that uh, elite capture is stronger in Canada than any other advanced nation in the world. And so that is a concern if there's a feeling that the Chinese regime has undue influence over Canadian decision-making and policy-making. And that does make Canada a weak link. And as Calvin pointed out, we have really quite a serious issue of um, transfer of, of, you know, Five Eyes-related dual-use technologies to the, to the Chinese regime. And we don't seem to be able to do much about it. You know, there are a lot of Canadian professors, not necessarily of Chinese ethnicity, background who are 
able to go to China and you know, open up parallel labs dealing in these sensitive areas, receive graduate students from China, um, maybe receive benefits from the monetization of their of their scientific investments, like being told, well, you can be on the board of the company that will be manufacturing this product based on your scientific research. And as the Australian Strategic Policy Institute has pointed out, um, a much higher proportion of Chinese People's Liberation Army um, research institute researchers who have come to Canada under false pretenses, hiding their affiliation with the army, claiming to to be um, um, you know visiting scholars who are just interested in pushing forward the boundaries of knowledge, and our universities who you know whose purpose is the is the creation and and um, and spread of of scientific advancement. Uh, are are not equipped to deal with issues of national security. It's not within their mandate. You know, they they create and and uh, distribute um, science, scientific knowledge. They're even happy if if companies like Huawei provide them with uh, research funding on the condition that the the patents for the any technology development revert to a Chinese entity. So. Um, you know, we we just don't seem to be ahead of the curve on this, and I think it does cause a serious problem for our allies in terms of to what extent they can share intelligence and collaborate with Canada if we're not maintaining the same security standards as as other members of the Five Eyes, particularly Australia, UK, and US are. And so that you know that is something that we really have to be taking much much more seriously and and responding much more much better to um, those uh, U.S. concerns and, you know, abandoning the idea that that the promotion of Canadian prosperity is the only thing that really matters in our relations with China and everything else should be subordinate to it and looking more at security and sovereignty implications and, and you know, and preventing, you know, looking more seriously at Chinese state investment in Canadian critical infrastructure and so on. You know, we, as you, you know, uh, Chinese state firm attempted to acquire Canada's largest privately owned uh, construction company, Acon, mm-hmm. which would have been, you know, provided China with a bonanza of information about Canadian infrastructure. And at the time of the uh, considerations, Acon was involved in projects on the Gordie Howe Bridge between Windsor and Detroit. So, you know, that you can see that that there's a lot going on there that we that we are not addressing with as much rigor as we should be and i think um you know we need more and better legislation and and we need to consider which side are we on and the idea that we can somehow play a sort of middle game between the united states and china mm-hmm. to canadian you know economic benefit it's just this is just not happening and you know i'll keep writing those op-eds to make sure that message is uh, you know up there in the newspaper and hopefully someone will read it well, and kind of coming to the end of our time here, but um, maybe the last question that I, I have for you, you did a really awesome job giving a lot of these answers. I mean, you basically every question I had, you covered off just naturally. So, uh, but uh, what are the solutions? So if you're prime minister and you don't have to deal with the pesky house commons, uh, <laughs> what are the solutions? So, you know, is it just simply a policy change or should we be listening more to our, um, our 
uh, law enforcement and intelligence agencies? Like, what are what are some of the major things that you see that we need to focus on and fix? Yeah, I mean, I I think unfortunately the prospect of me being elected to anything in Canada is pretty <laughs> small. I don't think I have that skill set, but uh, you know, I think obviously, first of all, we have to get on top of this um, Chinese subversion of policymakers. So we need much stronger legislation to ensure um, transparency and receipt of benefits from the Chinese state, both from people who you know are currently in positions of trust and from people who retire from government. And, you know, there's a lot of opposition to this and, you know, saying it would violate the protections of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, but other countries have done it. And, you know, if there's no problem here in Canada, um, then uh, uh, why not enact the legislation? You know, the, 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 the line given by those who oppose it say that on the one hand, it, uh, what's going on in Canada and in Australia couldn't possibly be happening in Canada. I, don't buy that. Mm-hmm. It would violate the terms of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. I don't buy that. It would be racist. And that uh, our security agencies like the RCMP and CSIS already have the tools to successfully address these issues, which I also don't buy because, uh, you know, we're, we're not seeing any any constraints on, on these matters. So I think certainly that's number one. Uh, number two is uh, legislation to strengthen our ability to protect our security and sovereignty in terms of Chinese state investment and and pervasive espionage. I think uh, we should be, you know, if allowing our police to do their job in protecting persons of Tibetan or Uyghur or Chinese democracy activists or Hong Kong people or Taiwan people from st- a Chinese state harassment and menace. In other words, if there are Chinese diplomats who are involved in this activity, as we know they are, they should be declared persona non grata and sent out. And if China decides to retaliate by reducing our diplomatic cohort in Beijing, Shanghai, Guangzhou, Chongqing, so be it. And if there are agents of the Chinese regime who don't enjoy um, diplomatic protection, then they should be brought up to be made accountable for Canadian law. Mm -hmm. We just have to send out a signal that this Activity just can no longer go on unchallenged. And I think finally, we need to be putting a lot more resources into our our RCMP and CSIS, particularly China-based expertise. We need restructuring to better meet the challenge of these issues like Calvin's referred to, like Chinese state regime um, relations with uh, Chinese criminal gangs and uh, and other uh, you know malign activities going on on the ground. And we need to beef up our our uh, our military to better meet the challenge. You know, the the current Indo-Pacific strategy over five years will provide enough funding for one more frigate to join in freedom of navigation activities in the Indo-Pacific. That's not enough, mm-hmm. and we have to get serious about the Arctic because China and Russia are getting together over Arctic matters, and if we're not present there, um, we're going to lose our our control of of Canada's own rightful territory. So, you know, it just means like at a time when the Canadian economy is suffering, we have to deal with decades of neglect and get serious about putting the resources into meeting the challenge. And China's putting an awful lot of money into this. And, you know, we just cannot respond to it without smart um, resources and reallocating resources from other 
sectors of our government to better meet the the challenge of China. So those are all my plans if I was prime minister. But uh, uh, I, I think I think it's coming. But you know the struggle is not over yet, and I think that it's incumbent on all of us to become much more vocal in trying to raise awareness of uh, people in government that Canadians just won't tolerate mm-hmm. this the 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 appeasing attitude of governments towards China any further, and that if we don't take action, that we will suffer in terms of our relationship with our allies. And, you know, that would be disastrous for Canada's future. Um, so I want to give you the opportunity to tell people how to follow you or uh, if you got any books or anything that you want to get in there. And then I'm going to throw it to Calvin for kind of a final word. Well, I mean, I am on social media. I don't have, uh, I think I have about like, 0.1% of the followers of, say, Justin Bieber. But uh, <laughs> you can find me at uh, cburton001. And, you know, most of the stuff I put out, I I would be posting up there. A lot of my work now is uh, is not publicly available, but uh, I do occasionally, you know, publish in open sources. And if the people who are interested are most welcome to have it. And, and I continue to do about 500 media hits uh, a year. So, mm-hmm. you know, people pick me up on, local radio and i don't know how much how many people are are actually aware of of what i'm doing but you know i welcome people to uh to listen in and send me their comments particularly critical ones on how i can be doing a better job getting the word out so thank you for having me on the podcast i really appreciate it yeah and over to you there calvin thanks uh very much uh charles we've uh, spoken a few times uh before and in the uh, Apparently, our pictures or names are on a few websites yeah. um, over in uh, China currently that we uh, share some uh, notoriety uh, uh, there. But I just thought it was really important, particularly because a lot of the audience are um, in the security and intelligence uh, world. And I just, I just thought it was like really important for me to say as a uh, former uh, police officer, thanks so much for your service. Um, I don't know if people uh, appreciate um, the passion, dedication, and kind of this new world that we're living in in terms of the risk um, you know posed to yourself in terms of uh, you know taking on you know the threats and the concerns that you uh, have. You know, everybody's worried about <clears throat> the issues with the uh, Hell's Angels uh, posing a threat, but I don't think, as the director of CSIS has uh, clearly stated probably the biggest threat out there right now is uh, China to national security. And I think you're probably one of the Canadian uh, so-called civilian generals out there uh, leading the charge on it. I just want to thank you for your service. I really appreciate the encouragement because, you know, it is, uh, it's, it's long and dispiriting work. I, I, it seems that, you know, it's either bad getting worse or worse getting badder. And, uh, you know, I hope that in the future we'll, see some more sort of life-affirming positive news about addressing this. And, you know, this will serve the Chinese people. If we can establish a, a healthy relationship with China, that, of course, is a benefit to the people in China who are living under very challenging and repressive circumstances today. Thank you. So uh, we'll kind of wrap it up there. Um, I want to say thanks as well. Uh, it's the first time we've met, but uh, amazing conversation and appreciate the candor. And um, if you can hang on uh, for two seconds after we end the recording there and just have some final words after that. Sure, be great.